You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Damian Williams, who's expected to be nominated as the next U.S. attorney in Manhattan, shares a credential with several other New York power players associated with the Biden administration. He's been a lawyer at the elite firm Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison, the New York-based law firm that has ties to the Democratic Party and liberal causes dating back to the Roosevelt administration, and one that helped Thurgood Marshall develop the legal strategy for Brown versus Board of Education. The firm of more than 1,000 lawyers also represents Wall Street banks, private equity funds, oil companies, and other large corporations, and generates more than $1 billion a year in revenue, according to the American Lawyer magazine. Joining me is Greg Farrell, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. Tell us a little bit about Paul Weiss. They're a big corporate law firm, so they actually do a, a range of things, not just representing large corporations, particularly banks, Wall Street banks, in investigations, but also, you know, prominent individuals that go to court and defend individuals who've been charged with, you know, wrongdoing. And over and above that, in an era when I think most big firms like to play both sides of the street, uh, they are very much aligned with the Democratic Party in terms of um, the pro bono issues that they espouse and um, the positions they take. They're not you know, trying to sort of play down the middle and not show their hand. They're quite unabashedly a firm that embraces the liberal democratic spectrum of causes, et cetera. At the same time, you know, they're hugely profitable. They're very large. They're big business and they handle a lot of, you know, what people on the progressive side of politics would consider like, you know, bad actors, you know, oil companies, Wall Street banks, et cetera, et cetera. So they're an interesting animal that way. Do they have any trouble navigating that divide between their causes and their clients? I mean, have they gotten any blowback for that? No, I was looking for that to see if there were any voices, at least among the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, who you know did not like this. The fact that this was such a this firm is such a big supporter of Democratic causes and Democratic candidates, but they you know make so much money off of companies that, that, let's just say, Senator Elizabeth Warren might not consider to be good actors, mm-hmm. you know. So, but no, I cannot find anyone who would had that position. It's like, uh, this is, you know, a wing of the Democratic Party, which is 
you know, deeply tied into big business in corporate America and proud of it. That's their client base, you know, big, you know, the biggest banks and the biggest, you know, companies. Uh, they did represent Carlos Ghosn, the former, you know, chief executive of Nissan, you know, during his, you know, the time when he was being held in Japan. Uh, you know, they dropped that after he escaped. But that's sort of an example of the type of big hitter you know, that individuals that they would also take on as clients. Their ties go back to the Roosevelt administration? Yes. So some of the founders of the Paul Weiss firm, Randolph Paul, you know, Judge Rifkind, uh, you know, goes back to that era in the 1930s. And there were close ties, you know, with the Franklin Delano Roosevelt administration. Uh, and they were fully supportive of, you know, what was then seemed like a revolutionary turn to the left back in that era. And this continued through the JFK era. One of their most prominent partners of the past generation was Ted Sorensen, who, of course, was you know a counsel for an advisor to President John F. Kennedy and a speechwriter, a very talented speechwriter. So that continues through you know the Clinton administration and more recently the Obama administration and now the new administration that they've had people who have gone from the firm to the White House or to the administration. Uh, and in, right now, I think we mentioned in the story a couple of prominent partners of Jay Johnson, who was, you know, among other things, Secretary Department of Homeland Security under President Obama, and Loretta Lynch, who was uh, famously Attorney General at the end of the Obama administration. How much does being at Paul Weiss help people get jobs in the Democratic administrations? Well, you know, it, I'm not sure it's just that. I think it's, you know, Paul Weiss attracts certain types of lawyers who are probably more in the liberal progressive. There are a lot of lawyers who you know, go to very expensive law schools and want to join firms where they can make a lot of money, but who nevertheless hold you know, blue values as opposed to red values in terms of e- economics. And so you know, Paul Weiss gets a cream of the crop selection frequently, but there are people who are clearly on board with what Paul Weiss does, pro bono work and with its political contributions, et cetera. It's very much a blue state firm that way. So it's more that they attract, that's not the best and brightest, among the best future law partners. And those people, you know, get involved and engaged and, you know, either move into government service or having served in government service when they're looking to go to a law firm, they find Paul Weiss to be an attractive place. This would be the case with Loretta Lynch, who came to Paul Weiss, even though she was with a, a different firm in the period between when she was the U.S. attorney in Brooklyn in the Clinton administration and then, you know, eight years later, Obama was elected. During those eight years, she was in the private sector, I think, with a smaller law firm. And then she was in the Obama administration, back U.S. attorney in Brooklyn, and then ultimately attorney general. And when she decided to get back into private practice, she joined Paul Weiss. So that's a certain kind of track as well. They bring in people who are already established names who are, you know, find it a good, congenial place to go. So the next Manhattan U.S. attorney was a lawyer at Paul Weiss. Yes, that's right. Damian Williams, who I'm not sure has been formally nominated or clearly the Biden administration has given the signal that he's the guy. That, of course, comes through Chuck Schumer. Rarely does a, a new president like actually get involved in the granular details of these selections. It's almost uh, always basically uh, something that is deferred to the senior senator in the same party to state where this takes. And in this case, this is Chuck Schumer, who has an outsized role. And that's a, an important element of this story. Uh, Chuck Schumer is the decider in this case for who the U.S. attorneys are going to be in Manhattan and in Brooklyn. And here's where another connection. Chuck Schumer's younger brother, Robert, is a partner, a very successful partner in the mergers and acquisitions practice at Paul Weiss. 
So he sits on the screening committee. Uh, you know, that doesn't mean he decides who the candidates are going to be, but he, you know, he's Chuck's brother and he's on the screening committee and he's at Paul Weiss. It's just further evidence of ties between the law firm and the Democratic Party. There's nothing ethically wrong with Schumer's brother sitting on the committee, but has it caused any problems? Has it raised any questions? Well, it's a guy you trust, and I thought that this might be a problem, you know, because I don't think this has been top secret, but no one's ever reported on this before until our story that the role could cause, like, problems, not so much from the brother of Chuck Schumer as much as, well, if, if a guy who's, you know, a partner of Paul Weiss is involved in the selection committee for a very important job, the U.S. attorney in Manhattan, is that going to create a problem where the new U.S. attorney feels like he owes some allegiance to his former law firm? And because perception-wise, you know, Chuck Schumer's brother may be one of many on the screening committee, but because he's Chuck Schumer's brother, you could infer that he's the most important member of the committee. So I was thinking of that, and then someone told me that like nine years ago, after Obama was elected, and it was similar, Chuck Schumer was going to basically make the call on this, you know, a similar screening committee, also which, uh, had Chuck Schumer's brother on it, recommended a Paul Weiss partner named Mark Pomerantz. And Chuck Schumer decided, uh, no, he wanted to go with his former chief of staff, Preet Bharara. So that actually undercuts the argument that either this is in the bag or the, the senator's brother has too much power. You know, more than a decade ago, Senator Schumer disregarded the advice of the committee, you know, which his brother sat. So, you know, it, it's not a guarantee. It's generally expected that investigations and you know scrutiny of Wall Street is going to pick up in a Biden administration. Will that help Paul Weiss with its clients? Well, I think it's going to help. First of all, uh, yes, uh, there is a perception, and I think it's probably accurate, that there'll be more aggressive enforcement of white-collar crime under the Biden administration than there was under the Trump administration. Um, Trump's priorities were different. He was very focused on illegal immigration and MS-13 violence. That was sort of his whole campaign plank was violent crime. And there just wasn't as much effort, you know, throughout the Justice Department on cracking down on white-collar crime. Uh, to that extent, during the Trump years, uh, a lot of smaller firms that rely on white-collar practices had trouble. 2017, 2018 were not good years for the smaller fish. Paul Weiss was fine, and so were a number of other large firms that, you know, had enough other businesses to keep going. But it was a difficult time. Assuming this is correct, that there will be, a, you know, a pickup in white-collar criminal enforcement, like all the big firms, all the firms that have, you know, white-collar criminal practices will benefit from this. Uh, Paul Weiss is one of the biggest, you know, maybe stands for it again. It's sort of like, you know, when trading is good on Wall Street, Goldman Sachs benefits, but so do a bunch of other investment banks, you know, but everybody thinks of Goldman Sachs. So if you want to use that metaphor, uh, yes, Paul Weiss would benefit from a, an uptick in in white-collar criminal investigation, but so would a lot of other firms, particularly smaller ones that suffered more than the big firms did during the Trump administration. As far as judges, are there a lot of judges from Paul Weiss? A number of them. I think uh, Judge Colleen McMahon, uh, Judge Lewis Kaplan, a number of other, you know, Paul Weiss partners that have been elevated to the bench. Um, so, yes, a lot, I'm not sure, but enough. Um, and, right, that's a, another component of uh, Robert Schumer, the senator's brother being on the screening committee, is that Chuck Schumer is also, and now is the majority leader of the Senate, uh, will play an outsized role in the selection of nominees for the federal bench here in the New York area. And there's likely to be a lot of vacancies in the next few years. So, you know, once again, you know, 
uh, you know, Chuck Schumer is a hugely important guy in terms of who the new you know judicial nominees will be in the in the Second Circuit in New York, and you know his brother Robert, you know at Paul Weiss will be playing a large role in the screening committee for that. Justice Sonia Sotomayor was a summer associate there. The firm, you know, I think they still do boast that they had when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was alive and serving on the Supreme Court, that, you know, the three women on the Supreme Court, Elena Kagan, RBG, and Sonia Sotomayor, all had served as summer associates at Paul Weiss. But in Judge Sotomayor's biography, like from almost a decade ago, she wrote that, you know, she, when she did not get an offer of a job at Paul Weiss at the end of her term there, um, she was crushed. Uh, she was just uh, absolutely devastated. And this hung over her. She thought it was like a failure that, you know, overhung her career until she eventually made it to the federal bench and she was able to move beyond it. She writes in her autobiography that, in fact, uh, it was probably the correct decision. She was probably not right or ready for a firm like that at that time. She didn't think she was treated unfairly uh, about it. But, but of course, it'll like not getting into the college of your choice or something. It could be, you know, a crushing thing. The head of the firm. So John Coffey, who's a famous professor at, at Columbia, said he's the, yes, that's the, right. the most well-connected man in New York. Yeah, I think he said man, but he meant lawyer. He's the best-connected lawyer in New York and Washington. Because Brad Karp is the chairman of Paul Weiss. And Brad Karp is just this super-connected guy who's very active and supportive of the Democratic Party. Um, he is kind of the, you know, the secret sauce. You know, he's, he's got just such a wide range of relationships in business and in politics. He's, he's like a super connector. You know, he's just a, an extremely well-connected guy, you know, particularly in New York and in D.C. And how has business been? The firm had a great year, and we focused on the whole role of, of Paul Weiss in the selection of U.S. attorney, or at least Senator Schumer's brother, and just how many top people and connected people Paul Weiss has at the firm. But they've doing really well business-wise in the last couple of years as well. It's an extremely profitable firm. The partners get paid really well, and they're at the center of a number of the biggest lawsuits and the biggest legal actions going on. For example, there's a big suit coming before the Supreme Court, I think, this week. Goldman Sachs is defending itself against, basically, it's kind of complicated, but a securities fraud case dating back to Abacus from more than a decade ago. And Paul Weiss is going to be defending Goldman Sachs before the Supreme Court in a decision that's going to basically impact Wall Street and the investment banks for many years going forward. The biggest legal case that you know all of Wall Street is paying attention to right now. Thanks, Greg. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Greg Farrell. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Lawsuits are piling up against Georgia's restrictive new voting law, which reigns in absentee voting and makes it a crime to give water to voters waiting in line. President Biden has denounced the law. I'm convinced that we'll be able to stop this because it is the most pernicious thing. This makes Jim Crow 
look like Jim Eagle. Joining me is elections law expert Derek Muller, a professor at the University of Iowa Law School. President Biden compared the Georgia election changes to Jim Crow in the 21st century. Would you say that that's accurate? That might be a little too far. I think one of the the big challenges about how to evaluate Georgia's law is that for the most part, what Georgia has enacted is things that are already happening in other states. And so you can look at it in one of two ways. You can say this is sort of something comparable to what's already happening in a lot of other states, or, you know, it's designed to clamp down and restrict a series of opportunities that have been previously available. And therefore, that change is sufficient as an outlier to make it troublesome. So again, it kind of depends on your perspective. If you're sort of looking at the baseline of what things were last year, you know, it restricts a number of things. If you're looking at how voting looks in the rest of the country, in many respects, a number of the provisions of Georgia's statute are going to look a lot like what happens in the rest of the country. So I think that's the, that's the challenge moving forward. We've heard a lot about the provision that restricts people from handing food or water to people waiting in line. But what do you think is the most restrictive part of the law, the one that, let's say, Democrats will be most concerned about? A couple of them, you know, that came to the fore last election include opportunities from the state sending absentee ballot requests that are unsolicited by voters, allowing them to fill them out, or allowing voter registration groups from collecting and returning absentee ballot applications. Again, those are things that are, are fairly common in a number of states, but when you looked at the pandemic, you looked at the opportunities to open up and make available absentee voting opportunities. These are a couple of rules designed to limit those opportunities. And a related one about requiring a copy of an identification if you're making an absentee ballot request. So all of these are getting around sort of absentee ballots generally, encouraging driving people to voting early in person. And the the bill does expand a little bit some of the early in person voting options and voting in person on election day. You know, for challengers, for opponents of the law, they would say, look, Absentee voting was essential during the pandemic. Absentee voting is a way of providing more opportunities to voters. So thinking about that suite of absentee ballot challenges is, I think, one of the bigger, bigger targets. What about the state board of elections being able to take over county elections because of the danger that that might affect places like Fulton County? It'll be interesting to see how that works in practice, right? In a number of states, there is a dispute about whether or not there should be more what we describe as home rule, more county or local administration of elections, or more sort of statewide uniform elections, more uniform decisions happening at the state level. And so in one sense, you might say, well, it's actually good to have some greater uniformity to have the state making some of these decisions. If we're electing a senator, we're electing the president, we're electing a governor, it doesn't make sense that the counties might be running these elections a little bit differently and administering them in different ways. But I think the real challenge is that the board now, it's it's a five-member board, and the legislature gets to choose the chair in addition to two members sort of chosen with potentially some bipartisan support or, you know, a Democratic nominee, a Republican nominee, things like that. So there is, I think, the increased risk of a partisan state board overseeing what's happening at the county. And I think that composition is now going to be sort of a question. Are they going to come in in a partisan fashion 
and alter what's happening at the county level? Or is their goal to provide that greater uniformity? So I think we'll see. I'm a little less interested in just the fact that they're moving some of these decisions potentially at the state level and more how an increased partisan or increased legislature controlled board chooses to intervene. Is there a scenario where, let's say, a Democratic candidate wins Fulton County and the board comes in and discounts the votes? That'd be very hard. I mean, I think, you know, if there's a problem in terms of the canvas, in terms of the counting of the ballots, I'd have to go back and look. Again, it's a long bill. I I don't know how much is happening there. I think there's some things about certifying of the results and sort of disputes about that. But, you know, if, if a county has said, you know, here's it's 10,000 votes for this candidate, 9,000 votes for that candidate. The law sets up what voter intent is. The law defines the classification of eligible voters. Boards of elections are doing what they can to sort of ensure that they've counted all of the ballots in the canvas. So in my judgment, I don't know how many kinds of opportunities there would be for the sort of state board to step in and alter the results like that. Um, my guess is then, even if it were to do something like that, that is right for a legal challenge, because asking who won or lost under existing law is not just sort of a discretionary function of, of the county board in administering elections. It's, you know, defined by statute. And I think there would be much more ripe opportunities in the event that, that the board tried to do something like that. How will the challenges to this Georgia law be reviewed by the courts? So a number of challenges in federal law really focus on what we describe as sort of this freedom of association claims. That is, the Supreme Court for a long time has recognized that the sort of nuts and bolts of voting statutes are subject to a balancing test where we examine the severity of the burden placed upon voters up against the state's interest. And so a more severe burden requires a more compelling justification from the state. So that's one of the grounds. The courts have used this for all kinds of things. It used to be a lot for you know, getting Libertarian or Green Party candidates on the ballot. It's also used for voter identification laws, used for early voting rules. It's used for a little bit of everything, just examining the the balance. And so Democrats challenging the law will try to say this presents a severe burden and the state doesn't have a justification for it. On the flip side, defenders of the law will say, no, 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 this places sort of a normal non-discriminatory burden that we have a legitimate interest in voter integrity and, and protecting the public and ensuring confidence in elections. There's also a challenge under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which, you know, we might be able to talk about what the standard looks like today, but the Supreme Court is considering a decision at this case at this very moment from Arizona about how to look at these kinds of Voting Rights Act claims under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act about whether or not a racial minority group has less opportunity to elect the preferred candidate of their choice. So we'll see if these mechanisms are designed to do that, if they have that effect. But the court is considering a challenge at this moment to decide whether or not that part of this complaint is going to be more or less viable going forward. Suppose this case gets up to the Supreme Court. Describe the Supreme Court on election rights. Have they been more restrictive or less restrictive? Yeah, one of the things is the court has mostly not weighted in. (laughs) There were so many cases that came up in 2020, and many of them, they either punted or they granted sort of temporary relief. And most of the time, what the temporary relief would be is to say, if if a state court had sort of enjoined or prevented a law from going into effect, the court tended not to intervene. Whereas if a federal court enjoined or prevented a law from going into effect, 
um, it would tend to reverse that decision and say the law should remain in effect. And so the court has, for the most part, been pretty hands-off. So there was a time in the 60s and 70s where the court was very hands-on in reviewing these cases, and now I'd say it's very hands-off. So on the one hand, you might look and say, well, you know, is the court being sort of hostile to or protective of voting rights, of states' interests, and so on? But in many respects, the 2020 election showed us that it has sort of very little interest wading into these cases. Again, it waded in in a couple in, in sort of a temporary emergency fashion, saying, these last second decisions, you know, federal courts shouldn't be involved and therefore allowing the state rule to remain in place. Um, but for the most part, it hasn't really been interesting in getting into the merits of these cases. So my guess is whatever happens with this case, uh, you know, whether or not it's upheld or struck down, because it's this sort of balancing test. It's this sort of series of factors that lower courts look at about the severity of the burdens and the like. The Supreme Court has, for the most part, has not been interested in delving into cases like that. Um, so, you know, it's sort of a wait-and-see approach, if that's the case. They were going to take out the souls to the polls, the Sunday voting, and they didn't take all the, the weekend voting out. They expanded it in some respects. Was that done, do you think, because they were afraid of a challenge that would look like it was discriminating against black voters? I think there's no question that, you know, um, you know, prohibiting Sunday voting, you know, has widely been regarded as sort of targeting an opportunity that black voters in particular have taken advantage of in recent years. Um, and, you know, th- there might be debates about whether or not a state can ever undo an opportunity that's been previously made available. But there's no question that that bakes into the record more of a racial dichotomy and how the statute uh, sort of builds that out. So I think there's no question that, uh, you know, Georgia Republicans did. They they amended the statute, I think, pretty significantly from the way it was first introduced uh, to scale back some of those sorts of components. So I do think it's, it's it's not just a bad look that they were worried about, but also worrying that it would be sort of further evidence that a court might cite to say, aha, look at these components of the bill that really are targeting black voters. We therefore think the whole bill falls for that reason or all of these components that are interwoven fall. So I think the, you know, the statute that does extend some early voting provides optional uh, Saturday, Sunday voting hours, not prohibiting them, uh, does sort of help try to insulate the bill from, from a legal challenge. Is there any way this bill could backfire against Republicans? Has that happened in the past where, you know, a restrictive bill ends up bringing more people out? Or perhaps in this instance, maybe a lot of Republican <laughs> voters are not who they were before. Absolutely. I mean, we've seen a dramatic demographic shift in the last five or six years um, in terms of, you know, rural, lower class white voters moving into the Republican camp, uh, you know, upper middle class white voters in suburbs moving toward Democrats. You never know if those things are going to change. But, you know, the first point you raised is, is, a, is an important one. There has been sort of backlash in certain areas where um, someone comes forward with a particular voting bill that's deemed sort of restrictive and in the court of public opinion, even if not in the court of law, sort of inspires a number of people to turn out, to fight and, and to show up to say that their voice will be heard. A second related one is, you know, for a long time, absentee voting, for instance, had been thought as a, as a Republican advantage. It was elderly voters. It was military voters. Um, and so it, it's strange to me that after the 2020 election, um, the sort of lesson for Republicans is, well, let's let's trim some of these absentee ballot opportunities so that more people will show up in person, which, again, maybe is maybe is the, the, the right call on the merits. I suppose there could be debates about that. 
But again, it's not clear to me that um, that was the Republican strategy 30 or 40 years ago. So it's, uh, it's I, I think it's certainly the case that, that laws like this can backfire in terms of the, any partisan intended effect it might have. H.R. 1, the For the People Act, what does it do and how would it solve some of these problems in Georgia? Yeah, well, I mean, 900 pages, it's a lot, <laughs> to put it that way. No, but some of the things it does do, you know, it, it does specifically require absentee ballots to be mailed out in an extended period of time. It provides for no excuse absentee ballots. It does have a number of sort of floors that it puts in place that would override the rules in Georgia or in a number of states, both new rules like Georgia's and old rules that have been on the book for a long time. Uh, so it does sweep in to effectively reverse most of the absentee ballot rules that are happening here in Georgia. Um, so in the event it did become law, you would see sort of a, a very generous absentee ballot sort of set of provisions. There, there's some other things about uh, early voting and um, you know other sorts of related rules. But I think when we're thinking about absentee vet ballots, voter identification laws, the, the earliness of sending out those ballots and things like that, all of those things are going to be swept up in H.R. 1 in the event it were to become law and effectively uh, moot this. Now, I say moot that. Um, technically, H.R. 1 only applies, for the most part, to federal elections because congressional regulations of state elections are uh, a little bit dicier in terms of the, the, the authority and power to do so. And so for the most part, states run their elections like federal elections because they have both on the ballot. But there's always the more remote possibility that Georgia... Uh, you know, would want to continue to to use some of these rules for state elections and not for federal elections, in which case we're back to the litigation side of things. So across the country, there are about 250 bills in 43 states. Has there been a time before when Republicans have moved so quickly and so across such a wide span to uh, restrict voting rights? You know, I, I have to think historically about some of the analogs, right? There's no question that after 2000, it's not just Florida, but a number of states started to wonder, you know, about, oh, boy, you know, what, what are our recount procedures look like? Or, or after the 2016 election, a number of states moved to, to enact statutes about requiring presidential candidates to disclose tax returns uh, as a condition of appearing on the ballot in sort of response to Donald Trump. But again, like the, the, the first is sort of a narrow class of cases. The second is really targeted at one particular person and it only became law in one state and even then was struck down. Um, so, you know, and, and after every election, I think every legislature wants to do something or make some sort of tweak to the laws when it comes to the elections. Um, but I think there's no question that we're seeing sort of a wave and it's hard for me to say it's unprecedented, but certainly nearly unprecedented sort of a wave of regulations addressing the kinds of concerns that Republicans or some Republicans, I should say, especially supporters of Donald Trump, uh, were raising in December and early January about the election. Um, And if that's the case, you know, it it is something that we haven't seen before, especially in states where we think the election was, you know, there was no evidence of malfeasance, no evidence of of widespread fraud, uh, you know, and for the most part, any problems were relatively isolated in nature. So seeing a response to what has been uh, mostly a smooth election in 2020 is, I think, along the lines of the more unprecedented things that we've seen. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Derek. That's Professor Derek Muller of the University of Iowa Law School.
And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every week at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash radio.